time. I think that's spoken in, like, on Friday night for Beacon, so it's great to be here. I think the yeah, I was talking to Tyus before this. So I used to be a youth intern here, like back in 2011, and I remember Tyus from even before he was in the youth group, the junior higher, and now he's in Beacon. So it's amazing. Uh, but tonight we're going to be talking about friendship and the love of God. Our theme is understanding how God's love gives purpose and direction to our friendships and our community. And I'm just really thankful for being here. Um, it really will feel probably more like a workshop style than a sermon style. I, I'm going to try to get really practical on certain things. So there will be some theological categories I'm going to give you. But then we're going to get very, very practical with some things I wish people told me about friendships and relationships back when I was in college and was definitely idolizing uh, relationships. But I'm so thankful that I was asked to speak on this topic, um, not because I'm an, a friendship expert, I am absolutely not, but this is probably what I value most here at Lighthouse, genuine friendships that show me Christ through their consistency, their candor, and their carefulness in my life. And the main resource and, and the main compass I have, the only compass I have for friendship, is really the love of God. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to see how the love of God informs and directs our steps in relationships. And to start, I want to ask you all a question. Who knows you? Do you have any 100% relationships? Like someone who knows every category of struggle in your life and is familiar with the ways your heart works. They might not know every single battle of every day, but they, you would say they really know you. You don't really keep secrets from them. They know the battlefield of your life. They know what those battles often look like and they pray for those things. So I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but is there someone like that in your life? Two or three people like that? can tell your 10, 15 minute story of, of what your life is like. I think we intuitively know to be careful when it comes to sharing specifics with certain people. Right? We, we stick to broad categories until a relationship reaches a place where we feel able to give kind of that higher level of clearance and let someone in. And though that clearance kind of keeps growing until the most personal, most fragile details of our lives are disclosed even where we feel the most shame. But if we're honest about, with ourselves, I think very few of us have friendships at that tier uh, of closeness. Very few of us keep up those friendships if we have them. And one simple reason is it's dangerous. Right? There's risk involved. We don't just talk about our most personal struggles with anyone. But God's love gives us hope as Christians that we, can, we don't need to fear sharing our lives. God's love changes the reasons we share our lives with each other. It changes the words we choose, and it gives us hope for every conversation. And it gives us a view of people that allows us to love like Christ and move those relationships toward Christ. So the way I like to come at discussing friendship tonight is by just examining how God's love shapes our lives, how his love shapes our relationships, and especially how he helps us be friends who bring his love into areas of suffering. So first, let's look at how God's love must shape our lives. And to help us with that, 2 Corinthians 3.18 really teaches us that we become what we behold. 
2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So how do you see God's love for you? How do you daily experience your Father's love? God's love must shape our lives because we become what we behold. So how do you see his love? God insists that we only learn to love by being loved. We love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. So how would you describe your relationship with God? God's love for you. Is, is his love hope-filled, restoring, compassionate, honest, faithful, merciful? And is, is that how others, other people would describe their friendship with you? Are you becoming like that? Is your love conforming to that kind of love? Do people taste the love of God in their friendships with you? We become what we behold. So the question is, how do you see God's love? Is his love tangible and recognizable? Is it present and is it rich and is it practical? Because if God is this deity who sits in heaven vaguely interested in your life, who keeps himself pretty detached and aloof, you will love similarly. If you believe that Jesus was sent to do something historically for you, and that he's coming again someday to do something for you again, but his present activities in your life are just shrouded in mystery, then you will love with this kind of impoverished view of God's love that will feel pretty irrelevant to daily life. Keep your distance, maybe neglect to pray, avoid building a deeper relationship, maybe not look forward to meeting up with people. So the first priority in learning to love well is to be sure that our daily enjoyment of our Father's love, like his friendship toward us, is forming us. It is, his love is real. It matters in our lives. It's vibrant. It's relevant to the decisions we make. So that God's love is, is reflected in our friendships. So how should you see God's love for you? The Hebrew word for God's faithful, promise-filled love, his covenant love, is hesed. And Paul Miller, in his book, A Loving Life, uh, describes this word hesed. He says, it combines commitment with sacrifice. Hesed is one-way love, love without an exit strategy. When you love with hesed love, you bind yourself to the object of your love, no matter what the response is. So if the object of your love snaps at you, argues with you, is in a bad mood, you still love them, you still move toward them. Hesed is the opposite of the spirit of our age, which says we have to act on our feelings. It says, no, hesed is like we don't act on our feelings, we act on our commitments that display the faithful, committed love we've received from God. And our commitments can last, and they can continue and go on and on because God's love for us does not come to an end. Right? We love because he first loved us. We continue loving because he doesn't stop loving us. Why is hesed love important? Because sins and sufferings come and go. Hope will rise and fall. Pressures in your life and relationships will, rock, will go up and down. Emotions and feelings can change in minutes. 
but words and actions of committed, real, solid love that goes down for miles and miles into the depths of the gospel, that's what lasts. If that is your love for your friend, they will have hope. Just you being with them will remind them of the hope they have in God. You just have to be next to them. If that's the kind of love that they have been experiencing from you, you wouldn't even have to say a word for them to be blessed by God having you near them. God will transform people not only through big expressions of love or through the powerful things you say, but through the simple ways you display the love God has shown you. We want to incarnate his love in the relationships he's given us. We are not just to be conduits of his truth, where we like are Bible experts and we have you know, truth for every situation, but we, our lives, are the evidence of that truth, of his love. So for example, if a friend like lashes out at me in anger while we're having coffee, and I text him later saying, hey, when can we meet up again? Like, that's hesed love. And I'm, I want to move toward. So what do people see when they look at your life, when they look at your relationships, when they see how you respond to difficulty? Remember that the most important encounter your friends have with you is really not you. It's, it's their encounter with Christ in you. You want them to see Christ. That's why you want to be close to them. So we must ask, does my life incarnate the love of Christ? Are you becoming what you're beholding? So does my life incarnate the love of Christ? Your relationship with Jesus will overflow into your daily life, whether you're conscious of it or not. So here are some questions just to help you practically evaluate that. How are your personal disciplines, spiritual disciplines? Praying, reading the Bible, are they, are they personal times? Are you enjoying God? Are you feasting on Christ? Are you able to communicate the gospel personally? Is, is the way you talk about Christ, is it personal? Is it like he's near you? He's relevant to you? Or when you talk about the gospel, is it like you kind of memorized a track? How are you growing in your battle with sin? Can you identify sin in your life? Do you have people checking your hearts for sin? Subtle sin, hidden sin. Are you growing in the way you turn to Jesus in the midst of suffering and hardship? The quality of your friendships will come out of all of these things. All of these will help you lean into the love of God. And these are just pathways of grace that help you lean into Christ, abide in Christ. So when that stops, the gospel love will no longer be present in your friendships. And our friendships will be clanging gongs and banging cymbals. And according to 1 Corinthians 13, without love first shaping and molding us, anything else we do profits nothing. And this sometimes, when I think about this, it just blows my mind every time I think about it. it I mean, the illustrations Paul gives, like, if I sell everything I own and give it to the poor without love, it profits nothing. And, like, I'm always like, seriously? Like, it helps the poor. It profits something. What do you mean it profits nothing? It means it's, if it's not about Christ, then it's not about his glory. It's not about his kingdom. It's not about eternity. It profits nothing. 
But as we become conduits of Christ's love, there are so many ways our relationships will be used by God to build his kingdom and will echo in eternity. So first, God's love must shape our lives. And second, it must shape our relationships. It must shape our relationships. So the first way I want us to look at this is, is through, we must build a relationship of trust by modeling Christ. So here we're getting into even more specifics of, of how we are conduits of Christ. Think with me for a second. What is the first issue in every friendship conversation? Okay, this is a person that you don't know. Maybe they're going to be your friend. What, what is kind of the issue? I think either whether we're aware of it or not, every person who sits down to talk with with someone else is always kind of asking, why should I trust you? Are you giving me a good reason to trust you? Are you giving me reasons not to trust you? Do I trust you enough to share this? And the unique aspect of friendship in the church is that you will talk to people who have already made the decision to trust you because of the context, because of where you are. You're a Christian, you're in a church, maybe you're in my small group. So they will likely be honest with you about some pretty delicate things without knowing a ton about you. It's a really unique context for relationships. Delicate things, grave sins, deep fears, heartbreak, disappointment, fragile aspirations, underlying confusions. And how you and I respond to those fragile things, delicate things, will either grow or devastate their trust in both us and the church. Look at how Galatians 6, 1 and 2 kind of encourages us to cultivate trust. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So, you guys are in the middle of a relationship series. You're going to study a lot of scripture on relationships. Scripture does not often speak directly about trusting people. The word trust in interpersonal relationships, if you do a word study on trust between people, it's not there very much. In fact, I can, I've only found one place where it's there. If you find other places, actually, I, I would love to know. But I think in Proverbs 31, where it says that the wife trusts her, or the husband trusts his wife while he's at the gates. Other than that, it's largely absent from discussions of interpersonal relationships. But we use it all the time. Do I trust you? Do I not trust you? And why is that? As much as we use it, trust is just not a common word for uh, for human relationships in Scripture. Well, it's everywhere in Scripture. Trust is everywhere when it comes to our relationship with God. Therefore, it makes sense that what will build trust the most in a relationship is how we demonstrate Christ, is how we show that we are connected to the one that they trust. And Galatians 6, 1 and 2 is a beautiful picture of this trust in loving those struggling in sin. So here are just some ways we demonstrate Christ and I think build trust in a relationship. In verse 1, 
Galatians 6. Uh, if you're not there, yes, yeah, please, please turn there, because we'll look at this for closely for a second. He says, you who are spiritual. So first, right off of the bat, in, in order for me to be a, a loving friend, to be a conduit of, of Christ building this relationship of trust, I need to be in a healthy place with God if I'm going to clearly articulate his redemptive love. I mean, that doesn't mean that I can't be messy, but I need to be in a healthy place if I'm going to be caring for my friend. Also in verse 1, restore. Right? As I care for my friends, I have a redemptive goal. I want to see them flourish. I want to see them grow closer to Christ. There's a trajectory that we're moving in toward him. I want to see restoration. I want to see an ever-closening proximity to Christ in our relationship. Also in verse 1, in a spirit of gentleness. So as I come alongside a friend to talk about sin, to talk about suffering, to talk about life, I don't have a spirit of productivity or a spirit of efficiency. Right? I'm not always looking at the clock. I must be careful with their life, with the fragile details of my friend's life. And even th things might look like they're moving slow, um, that, um, but I need a spirit of gentleness that disarms my friend, that cultivates trust, and that takes time. And the more I live that way with them, the more they'll entrust me with their life. Verse 1, keep watch lest you too be tempted. So I'm also, as I'm knowing my friend, I'm also aware of my own heart in this friendship. What are the real temptations I'm, I'm facing? Am I being honest with myself? And verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Now I love, I love this picture in Scripture every time it's used in relationships. The illustration of burden bearing just speaks to where we stand in friendships, in relationships, in the community of the body of Christ. I stand next to you under a load of heavy stuff with you. As your friend, I stand at your side. And that demonstrates Christ. I don't know if you've ever moved in college, I don't know, maybe you've only moved one time, like from your parents' house to your college dorm room, or maybe some of you have the awesome blessing of living at home and commuting to college, and that's, that's really great. I've gotten to move a few times in my life to different places, and, you know, and usually it involves church volunteers, so like friends from church coming out. And there are kind of different types of people that come on moving day, right? So there's the guy who comes super early and has like a box of donuts and like a 24-pack of water and has like a back brace on and closed-toed shoes. And you just know he's ready to go. Like, he's ready to lift my piano, right? But... Then there's, like, you know, the, the guy who comes, and like, halfway after we're finished in flip-flops, and you know his, like, you know, shorts are going to stay on if he's trying to, like, bend over too far, right? So who am I going to, like, trust to carry my, my heaviest burdens, like, my most fragile things? Like, who am I going to entrust my, my stuff to? It's the person who's ready, who's early, who's interested in the task. The only way we build trust is to continually reflect the image of God that they trust. And that builds this environment of comfort and safety for them to personally engage with you about anything without fear of being shamed 
or injured because they know you want to live this with them? Are you cultivating a relationship of trust? Next, build a collaborative friendship that moves toward Christ. The friendships we are building are collaborative partnerships. God is the one who brought you and your friends together. He's the one knitting your hearts together in love, according to Colossians 2.2. He is the one that we seek together, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, right? We are running toward him. So our friendships actively and humbly participate in the work that God is doing. It's his work. It's his grace. So the as we actively participate in that work, there should be mutual edification. There should be some patterns that are established in your friendship. So think of your closest friend right now. Can you think of a pattern of mutual edification that is there? Maybe you can talk about how that friend has been a blessing to you. You can point to specific ways they care for you, pray for you, love you. Um, but could you also share how you know God's using this relationship in your friend's life? You know how there's mutual iron sharpening iron going on. I think to answer this well, we have to do something a little bit awkward. When we're with our friends, from time to time, we have to talk about our friendship. We have to talk about our friendship with our friends. From time to time, let's, let's do that. If we stay on like an issue focus or a commonality focus, we talk about school, we talk about this problem, we talk about this event, but we never just talk about the relationship we have, I think we'll miss out on where are we in this pattern of, of mutual edification? What, are we participating with what God has for us in this relationship? So this is kind of like the define the relationship talk that you know only happens when someone's like, I'm going to go on a few dates, and then maybe we'll be boyfriend-girlfriend. We need to have this with our friendships. We need to have this, and not just to define it, but to celebrate what God's doing, to track what God's doing. I mean, have you stopped and celebrated? Can you, can you believe what the Spirit of God has done through our friendships? I mean, I don't think I would have made it through that if it wasn't for this in our friendship. So if it's a mutually edifying friendship, celebrate that together. Regularly identify God's grace in that friendship. Because that will remind you of why it's important to fight to be close. And when busy seasons come, you're going to remember, I'm going to fight tooth and nail with a machete through my schedule to get to that person because they, they show me Christ. And I need that. I want to stay in those iron sharpening iron patterns. Ask questions that also help cultivate mutually edifying love. So what do you think, here's some examples, like what do you think we can do to participate more with what the Spirit of God is doing here? You know, obviously I know there's, a, there's blessings from time to time, are there, are there ways we can build each other up more? If God, is, His grace is so abundant in our friendship, what else can we do? Um, how have you been sharpened and encouraged by our times together lately, this past year? What else can we do to sharpen our abilities to love like Christ, to seek his kingdom? Are there ways I need to be more honest with you or you with me? How can we check our hearts better, care for each other? So ask questions to cultivate those patterns. And then give honest feedback. So there needs to be room to be honest. And 
So I, I, I put like an example there, something like this. Like, you know, I appreciate how vulnerable you've been with expressing your emotions. It really helps me see what's important to you. Uh, sometimes, for me, it doesn't feel like our relationship is a safe place to share my burdens because I fear how you'll respond. How do you think we can cultivate just honest burden-bearing in a way that encourages both of our hearts and honors Christ? So that's, that's you know, you're not going to, don't, please don't memorize that question and then, like, try to regurgitate it in a special moment. But <laughs> if we need to be able to talk about stuff, right? Um, I call it moving from an issue focus to a relationship focus. So when I'm doing like marriage counseling or just relationship counseling and general family counseling, um, they, we need to be able to talk about the relationship itself. Like what makes it hard for you when this happens? How are you feeling when, the, in, in, when we get stuck here? You know, one thing I've not, that's been on my heart to share, and I know I'm going to mess this up, but I just want to share it. I think there needs to be a little bit of room for us to talk together as sinners and trust that, that the Spirit's going to work through that and then bring us in, in the messiness of who we are in relationships to, to a place where we're honoring him. And that's our goal. So as I walk with a friend, I want to hear feedback. And I might notice that there are subtle and not so subtle ways I might be shaming those are who, who are inviting me to uh, bear their burden, right? Like, am I assuming the worst of them every time they talk? Um, Am I making up too many sarcastic remarks? Over the years, I have made so many mistakes. I continue to make mistakes. And especially with my wife and my friends. Yet God has graciously helped me grow. Largely because of feedback from friends. Who will help me see myself. You need honest relationships. And you need to be honest in those relationships. Number three, evaluate your personal engagement. So this is Philippians 2, 3, and 4. And if you've spent much time with me over the past three months, this is like something I'm talking about all the time. This passage, Philippians 2, well, 3 through 8. But Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, Do nothing out from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And then verse 5 through 8 says, have this mind. So this is pointing back to verses 3 and 4. Have this mind, this, this others-oriented mind, this you're more significant than me mind, your interests matter more than mine. That, that, have this mind in you that is yours in Christ Jesus. So have the mind of Christ is what it's saying. And then it goes into the actions of Christ in, through the story of the gospel, who made himself nothing, who took on the form of a servant and to was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, right? We need the mind of Christ and the actions of Christ in order to love like Christ in our friendships. And everything that is kind of in this section under evaluating your personal engagement um, is kind of built out of this category of, I, in order to love you well, I need to see you. I need to know you. I need to understand who you are so I can love you well. I need to honor you and see you as more significant than myself. So all these kind of techniques and things we're going to talk about are built on this idea that we need to cultivate the mind of Christ as well as the actions of Christ. So one thing that will help us do that is the empathy map. So you can look at the last page of your notes to see this. There's an appendix at the very end. So you uh, might be familiar with empathy mapping. Uh, it's a tool in marketing. Um, 
So, I, but at first it was a tool in counseling. And even before that, it was something that Jesus used to love us. Uh, so, because he saw us. He saw our greatest needs and loved us. Um, but an empathy map gives us a wide-angle lens to more fully see another person. We want to see them clearly. Now, the questions that are on that empathy map, they're not just for you to go ask every single question. Um, but it's really information you gather as you just spend intentional quality time with someone. So you, you, you start to fill out categories like feeling. How are they feeling? What feels important to them right now? Thinking, what are they thinking about? What questions are on their mind? Doing, what are they doing or trying to do? Seeing what people or things or situations look big to them right now. Hearing, who else is speaking to them? Who or what is influencing their heart right now? Pain, what pain feels most intense and do they want to be rid of most? And goal, what currently is their main hope in their relationship with me? So let's say you and your roommate, you know, get into an argument. Um, can you do an empathy map for them after that? How are they feeling? What were they thinking about? What were they seeing? What were they doing or trying to do? What, what, was, what pain felt most intense for them? What's influencing their heart right now? What, is, what are they hoping in their relationship with me? If you can do that, then you're setting yourself up to love them well. Because you're, you're trying to just see them, to locate them in the context of what's going on in their life and count them as more significant. So some, some ways to get there is first you can ask open-ended questions. Right? We're trying, and in order to count someone more significant than myself, I need to see them, to locate them in the greater story of their life, to come alongside them. I need details. I need details about their burden. I'm going to come underneath it. I need details about them. What's led them to this place to carry this burden? So we need the story. We need the picture. We need the big picture. And to do that, we need words, lots and lots of words from that person. This is why open-ended questions are so helpful. So there's a list of there, like, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? What are some of the things you're hoping for? What are you wrestling with in the midst of this decision? What has helped you seek Christ in the midst of this? When did this start? All these kinds of questions allow you to really see the person and locate them in the context of what's going on in their life. And then evaluate your questions. What are your questions like? Uh, do my questions reveal weakness and show that I'm learning? And if you're talking to someone and they say something that doesn't make sense to you, this thing can happen. You can start thinking about what they said like that any sense, I'm trying to figure out what they were saying, and they're still talking, right? Um, and then you miss what they're saying, and they feel like maybe you're detached or aloof. If someone says something that doesn't make sense to you, you can ask about it. Um, and you don't always have to ask immediately. You can set it aside and write it down, like, oh, let me write that down. I want to ask you about that later. Can you explain this more? I really want to make sure I'm understanding you. Do, they, do your questions reveal weakness? Show that you're learning. Um, do you already know a lot of the answers to your questions? So, like, um, hey, do you know where the dish is supposed to go? Uh, or, you know, just things like that where it seems really demeaning or like you're giving your roommate a seventh grade math test, right, to see if they remember the details. Um, yeah, so do my questions focus too much on facts? I'm, I'm tell, ask, telling you guys these things because they're things I wish I had known back in, in college. Um, yeah, if you ask too many factual questions, you're not really seeing the person, right? So did you read your Bible today? 
Did you pray? What did you pray? How long did you pray? What did you pray about? Right? I almost can feel like you're getting a grade. Uh, do my questions come in rapid succession, like an interrogation, kind of like that? Uh, do my questions get to the heart? Right? Am I learning about this person's worldview, desires, worship? Are the questions helping them connect the dots between heart and life, their understanding, their life? And then scan three areas as you listen. So what do you normally hear in a conversation when someone's talking? Are you wanting to know more about this person? So I suggest these three areas for you to scan as you're listening to someone. First, listen for the good. Right? This person reflects God. So can you see the work of the Spirit? Before looking for anything else, right, you're just trying to see God's grace on display and help them see it. In 1 Corinthians 1, that's where Paul starts. Right? He's talking to this church that's super duper sinful. And he says, I'm just so thankful for you. Your testimony, the specific things that God has done in your life. Number two, listen for the heart, the person you're, whoever it is that you're with is a sufferer. Can you pick up on the troubles that they're facing? And I'm going to talk more about that in a few minutes. Um, do you know how to love those who suffer? Do you feel like you have to give an answer, compelled to give advice? How do you handle people's troubles with care? And third, listen for the bad, right? The person is a sinner that you're with. So what do you do when someone confesses their sin to you? Thanks for telling me. No, like, I'm blessed that you, that you would share that with me. Now, how can we move forward together? How can I walk with you through this? I'm trying to avoid shaming them or adding condemnation. All of these things are areas of listening that we scan for opportunities to love within our friendships. As believers, this is how we relate to each other. We see sufferer, sinner, saint. And this way of listening should help you connect and be personal because you see all those things in yourself and they're things you would want people to see in you. So here I am, I'm Tim St. John, counseling pastor, wife, I mean, my wife is G. St. John, I have two boys, four and two. You know those details about me, but do you know that I'm a sufferer? That I live in a world that is cursed? And I, I experience the darkness of this world, that the curse of this world touches my life, it intersects my life at several points. I'm sinned against. Do you also see that I'm a sinner? That I sin? Do you expect that? Is that allowed? Am I allowed to sin? And, and do you know that I'm a saint? That there's the grace of God at work in my life? Do you anticipate that? Do you look for that? Do you see people this way? They're a sufferer. They're a sinner, they're a saint. And that's how I'm trying to understand them. That's how I want to know them, pray for them. Some practical suggestions to humbly loving well uh, in it with a friend when you're meeting up with them. So consider how your friend experiences their time with you. So what do they see? What facial expressions do you show? Do you, do you avoid eye contact? What's your body language like? Do you do you fidget when you talk, right? Like, do you constantly, like, do this? Yeah, yeah. You, like, flick your nose a lot. One of the things, like, I do is, like, I scratch my, I can scratch my beard, like, all day long while I'm talking. Really? That's so interesting. Um, like, what do they hear? So what? not only what do they see, but what do they hear? Uh, like, vocal tone, your speech rate. Do you speak really loud or really soft? Um, do you speak, do you talk too much or too fast? 
Um, I, I used to, and I still can struggle with um, another person's processing time, right? I have this like, oh, I, I have something to say, right? And so I might move on, and they're like still thinking about that other thing we were just talking about. And so am I too fast to move on? Am I silent when words are needed? If someone is crying, if someone is hurt, or they just share deep suffering, are you just, are you silent when words are needed? Is there verbal tracking and reflective listening? Like, um, are you tracking their story? Are you staying on topic? Or do you, do you divert the topic from the thing that they were talking about? Reflecting, uh, do you reflect back on what you've heard them say with them? Some common pitfalls when relating. I think uh, using minimal verbal encouragers can communicate that you're passive or detached. So, uh-huh is a, is a verbal encourager, right? Like, yes, I hear you. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Versus they're talking and you just, <laughs> like, say nothing, right? Um, that can feel like a denial. Like, you maybe not don't mean it that way, but it can feel like a denial to that person. Like, okay, what I'm saying really doesn't make a difference right now, right? Or have, um, I don't know if you've seen people doing that or if you've done it. Nodding too much can be a thing, right? I don't know if you've seen someone like, yeah, 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 right? So that can also communicate like you're in a hurry or uh, that you want to turn to talk. Maintaining a, a stoic face, we, we, we want to be with them, engage. Making your face too animated, whoa, I can't believe, right? Um, so I try not to do that in counseling, right? What happened? Um, what are we going to do? Closed body language, like crossed arms and legs, leaning away, or sitting too relaxed. This this happens to me, like, you know, too much. Like, I'm with a friend, I'm going to be propping my legs up, I'm like, how's it going? And they're like, you know what, I just had a major fight with my spouse. And all of a sudden, my whole posture has to change, right? Because I have to really mean when I, when I said, how's it going? Right? I, I can't just be like, how's it going? And they go there, I, I don't sleep, I haven't slept in like two days because of something and I, all of a sudden, I'm sitting up, I'm engaged, I'm leaning toward, arms are not crossed, I'm interested. Um, staring too much, matching a friend's face rather than the content. This happens uh, from time to time in just friendships, happens in counseling. Someone's telling me something really tragic, perhaps, maybe a death in the family that they're having trouble dealing with. They're, so maybe they're laughing because they don't understand how to process it, or they're trying to minimize in order to not be a burden to me. So I need to be aware of moments where there might be a mismatch between what they're sharing and how they're sharing it. So don't just match maybe their face, listen to the content. All of that is built on this category of I'm wanting to see them as more significant than myself. There's all of these ways I'm trying to honor them when I'm with them. Finally, God's love must help us identify with suffering. God must help us identify with suffering. So a few things here. First, look for those who are hurting. Suffering is everywhere. Psalm 34, 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And many are the afflictions of everyone who walks on planet Earth because it is the, it is the wilderness that we are in. So it's so easy to miss the suffering that you find in the church, to miss the suffering that is in the person singing next to you. Maybe tonight, or on a Sunday morning. And there is nothing 
as church leaders we can do to ex excavate that suffering story and hand it to you so that you can help that person. There's no administration formula, there's no structure, no questionnaire, nothing that can actually pull out the very real suffering of the people around you outside of you having a real relationship of wisdom and love with them. I mean, we can create lanes and opportunities and questions and Bible studies and more questions, but it takes Christ-like relationships to be present for there to be openness. We need to be already linked into each other's lives before the waves of sorrow come. I, I tell people the hardest thing in the world should be leaving your church community because that's where you have all the burden bearers. That's where you've built the relationships where you can go when sorrows come. Secondly, churches can have a hard time talking about suffering and sin. I think the church's mishandling of suffering in their relationships is one of the primary reasons that people in the church turn to services and professionals outside the church to carry their burdens and to help them move forward through debilitating pain. Right, here are just some of the things I've witnessed in ministry circles I've been a part of. I've heard someone say to an abandoned spouse, you need to just be happy. And what did you do to drive them away? Or just make sure you never marry again because that would be a sin. Or just make sure you never have kids because they would be an abomination. Or to a woman whose brother was just put in prison, you need to count it all joy or it's sin. Be anxious for nothing. Or to the infertile parent, you just need to try harder. Are you really trying to have a kid? Or to a battered spouse, well, you know there's always two sides to the story. How did you provoke his actions? Those are all things that just I've witnessed and seen. We need to be aware of how the people who come to our church may have already been hurt by the church they're coming from or have been hurt by relationships in our own church. It takes great courage for them to open up. And so we have to be very careful not to re-victimize those who have been hurt by approaching them with assumptions or quick fixes or sound bites. If you're in a small group and someone starts to talk about their suffering, Please be careful. Next, we need to draw near and be slow to speak. So friendship always involves caring for suffering. Right? Like I said, we live in a wilderness of darkness and brokenness and sin that's pressing in on our lives. So we should want to hear where our friends are hurting. Is that something you're scanning for? Yeah, I talked about that earlier. But where do your friends experience the brokenness of this world touching their lives? Where do they experience being sinned against? And how are they processing their pain with God? Do you know the answers to any of those questions when it comes to your friends? So friendship always involves caring for suffering. Next, suffering needs a risk assessment. So as a faithful friend, you should know the scope and the seriousness of your friend's suffering. So ask questions that will help you know frequency, like how often does this happen? Duration, how long does it last? And intensity. How bad does it get? If your friend is telling you about their suffering, ask those questions. How often does it happen? Frequency. How long does it last? Duration. And how bad does it get? Compassion is the rule, regardless of the cause, right? So we're not really interested in saying, okay, I'm only going to show compassion if their suffering had nothing to do with their sin. 
And Hebrews 4, 15 just points to a high priest who's familiar with our suffering, all of it, all our suffering. And we get to be ambassadors of his compassion. So everything we say must come with a sense of that humility and partnership that Christ has with us in our sufferings. Next, pray for those who are suffering. How do we pray as friends with each other when our friend is suffering? So here's a quick methodology that I generally use when I'm praying for someone. I didn't read this anywhere. This is just from friends really at my house who have prayed for me in really hard times. And this is just how I feel like I've been consistently cared for. So this is what they do. Um, first, there's this encouraging hope, right? There's God's certainty in the midst of whatever the uncertainty is that comes with suffering. Like, God, we are thankful that you are in this, that you, your love is certain in the midst of the uncertainty. Next is describing biblically the suffering. Right? Father, we know that what is happening to this brother and this sister right now is a shadow of death, and you have called death the final enemy that you will destroy. But, Father, right now we live with this enemy and the shadows of this enemy that want to only... But, and we know that by your grace that these enemies that want to destroy only serve to draw us nearer and nearer to you as we rest in you, because you are with us in the shadows of death. Pray for the spiritual and relational health. Right? Maybe have they shared some specific temptations that they're facing in their suffering? Do they have community support around them? Like, I can actually pray by name for the people that they've told me who are with them, right? So maybe it's not just me. Like, I pray for their pastor as they are going to be meeting with them, that you would just give him wisdom. I pray for the difficult conversation they're going to be having as they share this news with their spouse, right? I, I'm going to be praying for the spiritual and relational health that's going to be part of their life going forward. And number four, pray for relief. So I don't make it all about the issue. I want to remind them of the context first, right? First, there's God. Then there is what the Word of God says to give light to this journey. And then there is their whole, this person is, is in the context of all these other people who care about them. And finally, I'm going to talk about the very thing that's on their heart that's pressing on them. But it's not the biggest thing. So we want to pray against the things that we know that God is against. Prayer for relief is important. Prayer for relief is important. But I don't think it should be the first thing or the main thing. It's often not what is most memorable when people pray for me. If you think about how people pray for you during times of suffering, is it, God, please take this away? Maybe it's not the most memorable of the way people pray for you, but how they've helped you see God, find your way to God in the midst of suffering. I've been blessed when people want to make Christ so glorious in my eyes and I'm reminded of the hope that I have in him. Um, encouragement through your presence. So how can you be ambassadors of God's comforting presence with your own presence? Like how have non people non-verbally expressed to you that they're with you in their suffering, in your suffering? I mean, I know this is cultural. I'm from Alabama. There's certain ways we have of like expressing I'm with you and it usually means I'm going to be really close to you with like lots of hugs and food. But for you, how can people effectively communicate the idea like I am here and nowhere else? And through the eye contact, the proximity, uh, I'm with you, that you've honored me by sharing your story with me. Kind of going back to the body language stuff. What does your face, your body language, your posture communicate about 
your presence with them. And, and just a side note, um, this, this is a challenging thing maybe to do, but if there's someone you know who is good, who can give you some good feedback, maybe who's emotionally sensitive, you know, maybe a, a girl, guys, who can give you some feedback on how you talk, ask them, how, what is, how are you presenting yourself? What are your, just your body language habits that naturally maybe move you away from people, and, and how could you kind of work on that to move toward people in a more loving way? It's, it's been helpful for me to know how I can grow in these areas. Um, next I, is the when and how to answer the why of suffering. Years and years ago, I remember sitting in a living room with uh, a brother whose spouse had just passed away. And I remember with tears running down his face and just saying again and again, why did she have to die? But why did she have to die? And then, I remember my mind just racing through all of this doctrine in my mind. Like, I have all of these answers of why. Like, this is like theologically correct answers of why. And all of it is, is going to hurt him right now. Like, none of it is warm. How am I going to connect any of it to Christ? How am I going to answer this question? And as I thought about it, it drew my mind onto the countless other times when I've sat with people who were abused as children and they are saying to me now as adults like why did God let this happen what was God's purpose in my suffering so that kind of why question when do we answer it how how do we answer that question so I want to say this when it's first asked when it's first asked of you if someone asks you that question why did God allow the suffering it's important not to go to, well, here is my full theological answer. Rather, say, your question is so valuable because it longs to see as God sees. And we want to see our lives as God sees. There's so many things in this life that are hard to understand, but it's not wrong to want to understand your life. But I think what God wants first for us is to take hold of him and to continue to hold on to him in this. And really just to start, I think that's where we can start with the question, who is with me? And as you start to answer that question, you'll be able to begin to unpack the why. Now, I am honestly here, I have made mistakes here before. I have gone and said, to someone, are you sure you want the why? I'm not sure if it's the right time, but okay, here it is. And I gave a kind of systematic theology of suffering. And I felt awful after it was over, you know, because they told me this immense story of suffering, and it was so doctrinally dry. I, I tried to warm it up with like an emotional flourish to, to connect it to Christ, but it didn't work because it was not connected to their suffering. It just was not connected to their story. I'm trying to answer their question, but it's not actually a question you answer. It's just a way they need to know God. They might not know that that's what they're asking, but that's what they're longing for. I need to know God in deeper ways in the midst of my suffering. That's what they're longing for when they say, why did God let this 
And as their vision of who God is in their suffering grows, they will discover the meaning, meaning in their suffering, some meaning. They will see the grace of God coming toward them on display in their suffering. They will see things he is doing and accomplishing in their hearts, even if situations don't change. And then as time goes on, more full answers will come. But much later, I think when they're able to tell a story of their suffering and how God works through it all. But we never answer that question with detached doctrine. Our small response must fuel their love for Christ as they see who he is in the midst of their pain. It needs to be in it. Our response needs to fuel their worship. Um, the final thing here is just kind of what to, not to say to someone who's suffering and what to say. And I know I'm way over, I think I'm way over time. Sorry. I'll just try to um, go through this here. So just think of a trial you've been through. What did people say that was helpful, and what did people say that hurt? What do you wish people had said? And before we go through this, I just want to note that what is helpful and meaningful to one person may be unwanted or even annoying to someone else. There's no like no one-size-fits-all words or deeds of love. Um, but keep in mind, like I think as we get into this, Job's life and his counselors, right? You know, Job's the book of Job. The first two chapters are the stories of like his situational suffering, terrible, devastating suffering. Then there's over 30 chapters of more suffering for Job, right? As he is terrorized by his counselors, right? The story of Job is, is a story of him being terrorized by terrible counselors. So as we respond to people's suffering, realize that we can be part of the true trial that they are going to go through as we respond to their suffering. So, all right. Let's look at this. So first, um, don't use Proverbs 18:17 to launch an investigation into someone's suffering. Right? Our aim when someone comes to us who's hurting is not to disprove their pain. So um, Proverbs 18:17 says, um, one person says one thing and it sounds right until another person comes and shares kind of their side of the story. So there are people who are suffering who I would say maybe maybe they shouldn't identify as suffering. Um, but I don't need to deny their pain, or it doesn't really help me to disprove their pain. I can say things like, being that it's hard for you in the midst of this, when this happens, how can we move toward Christ in this? I can help them move toward Christ in the midst of even their perceived suffering. But it doesn't help for me to disprove their pain. In fact, I can't do that. I'm not going to be able to say, that experience isn't real. Oh, Wow, it's gone. I, didn't, I don't hurt anymore. Great. That's not the way suffering works. Next, don't be silent. Our suffering can essentially deny another person's suffering and loss. The two most common excuses people use to avoid speaking to someone when they're suffering are, I don't know them very well, and I'm not sure what to say. And a lot of you guys have probably heard me say this before, but to say those things. Say, I'm sorry, I know I don't know you very well, and I don't know what to say. Would say, I'm so sorry, I'm praying for you. That will mean so much. Don't have a, a face or body language that communicates detached analysis, confusion, or boredom in the face of suffering, especially. Um, don't ask potentially painful questions. For example, if someone's committed suicide, you wouldn't ask details about like, how they did it to their family. 
Uh, common things that are probably unhelpful from Nancy Guthrie. This is from her book, What Grieving People Wish You Knew About and What Really Helps. And she, she went through four miscarriages, and here's some things she heard. I know just how you feel. You'll be fine. You can always have more children. Well, at least, anything after that is not good. Don't you think it's time to move on? I guess God needed him in heaven more than we needed him here. I just know God is going to heal you. God just wants you to be happy. So just don't say any of those things. Be very careful. Uh, cor corrections. Uh, Job 6.26 says, The words of someone in pain belong to the wind. So we have this category called wind words. Right? We don't correct in the face of immediate suffering. Right? Job's wife is a great example of this. Right? She comes up to Job after she's lost everything, including all her children, and she says to Job as he sits painfully covered in his sores, curse God and die. And if you read like the commentaries about Job's wife, I think like Martin Luther calls her like the messenger of Satan and things like that. But, you know, he had children who honored and feared God, who worshiped God, and at the end of his life, he has the same wife, and once again, he has more children who honor and fear the Lord and worship God, and I want to believe she has some part in that discipleship process, and that he, that, that she was in a ton of pain after losing all her children, so we don't hold her um, captive and define her with the only thing recorded of her in scripture is curse God and die. Okay, so I think we'll see her in heaven. Um, you, <clears throat> this is something that is said to someone who's gone through loss, and this might be pretty like uh, very maybe too specific for our time together. But you didn't go through the Kubler Ross stage of anger when you lost your child, so you can't be missionaries. So like saying like your grief needs to look like this or needs to fit a formula. So um, and I. Uh, one of my counseling professors once said, like, those stages of grief, they can be helpful observations. Like, yeah, sometimes people get angry, they can become, you know, depressed, but they can become unreasonable expectations. Like, well, you have to have these five stages, or well, otherwise you're not grieving. Um, you know, one stage that's not in the five stages of grief is grief. Like, ordinary sadness, it's not in there. Depression is, but, yeah. So that's different than just being sad. Okay, so not holding some kind of expectation or formula. You need to grieve this way or it's not real. Uh, forgive and forget in the face of intense suffering, like rape or abuse. What to say? I think this can be harder because we've not experienced a lot of care, perhaps, when we've suffered. I honestly, the more I talk to people about this, like, what are the things you say to someone who's suffering? I think we have a harder time with this category because... Oftentimes we just don't talk about suffering, or we're scared we're going to say the wrong things. So we don't say anything. So here are some, some things I think that can be helpful. After the death of a loved one, share positive memories about a person who died and with those who are mourning. In Guthrie's book, she emphasizes communicating the value of the person who has lost to the individual who is grieving. Um, things like after great suffering or a loss, leave a message, send a note, mark your calendar to remember the anniversary of a death, call or text them on that anniversary. Just pray, show up, 
be there, be slow to speak, quick to listen, and pray kind of in the format that we shared earlier. Um, and finally, can you tell a, cross, a, a Christ-centered story of your own suffering? Remember the effort in sharing your story is not to match someone's story. Man, I'm sorry, uh, your daughter passed away. You know, 20 years ago, my aunt's second cousin passed away, and that was really hard. Right? That could communicate like self-centeredness and sensitivity. You could belittle their pain. Rather, share your story when you're in the midst of talking about hope with that person, so that you're not just matching their pain, but you're really sharing in this is God's grace in the midst of our suffering. Um, your story of how God has comforted you in all of your affliction is meant to be a story that is a comfort to others. Second Corinthians one, uh, Paul says, "Blessed be the." Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we can comfort others in any affliction with the comfort that we have received from God. So the grace that you have received is meant to be have this kind of cascading effect onto the sufferings of others and be like a ball, a healing place that reminds them of who Christ is. And it all starts with how you experience the love that is what will drive every aspect of a redeeming relationship, a friendship that echoes, that has echoes into eternity and builds the kingdom of God. Let me, uh, let me close our time in order prayer. Father, I just thank you for this time to just reflect on your love and how your love truly needs to control every aspect of our lives, ministries. Lord, as Paul wrote, the aim of our charge, the aim of our lives is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So, Father, we just pray that your love would define how we approach every single relationship, every friendship. Maybe the, the people that we're just getting to know, to the, the family that we've known for years, to the closest friends that we have, I pray that as we go from here, we would evaluate truly what is driving our friendships. How are we cultivating um, friendships that really glorify Christ? And we ask this, Father, for your name's sake, for your kingdom's sake, that our church, Lighthouse, would be a place um, where your love echoes into our lives and goes forth as a light in this community and this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.